Hello friends, it's Mick. A few announcements before we get started, um, and then Tommy will have one for you as well, so it's an announcement-heavy episode. First off, this case that we're going to be talking about today is going to involve a discussion of uh, possible suicide and some of the factors that may have been involved in the case that kind of revolve around possible suicide. Um, we always try to do these things sensitively and informatively. It's going to pop up a couple of times in the episode, so I just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Um, that's rough for some people to hear about, and if that's rough for you, we get it. Come see us again, or, you know, just take some breaks and hang out, listen for this one. I think it's a really good episode. The second announcement is that I am cursed and halfway through the episode, my computer stopped recognizing my headphones and my mic and all of the things for no good reason. Um, so we had to record over two days. And if there's a weird change in sound, that's why. I promise guys, I'm trying. I'm learning this as we go along. <laughs> so anyway, that's all. Here's the intro music. Wretched friends, welcome back. We're excited to see you again. Hear you. We are glad for you to hear us. It's weird because it's like we're happy that you're here, but uh-huh. we don't know how you're here. I mean, we know how you're here, but we don't know like when you're here, who you are, why you're here. Yeah, I mean, I hope we know why you're here, but. You know, we don't have high self-esteem, so we don't know why you're yeah. here. <laughs> so you could be here just to laugh at me and my speech impairments. It's fine. It's okay. I do not Whatever. have any speech impediments. Anyway. Um, what's up? I have a three-year-old, everybody. <gasps> the best three-year-old. I know. So my kid just had her birthday. It was space-themed. Mm-hmm. Everything was in outer space, and we made her some Minnie Mouse astronaut cupcakes that were, like, a very proud moment for me because they were adorable and delicious. They were really, really cute. I saw pictures of them. Thank you. Yeah. And I realized I'm not allowed to say my favorite three-year-old because I have a nibbling that's three, and I love you, too. Um, yeah, but mine, though, you know? Yeah, but that sister's probably our biggest fan. That's true, and I love that sister. She's a really good one. Yeah, most of them are good ones. Most of them. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so it's no longer snowing. No, it's nice. Yeah, the ice daggers are falling. Mm-hmm. It's like Midwest hoodie and shorts weather almost. I was just thinking that as, as, as I was leaving work. Which is such a beautiful thing. Really is. Such a beautiful thing. I mean, it never really is for me because I'm constantly cold and I'll just complain about it forever. But, you know, I kept thinking like what I feel like I've been so entrenched in crime this week that I'm like, there have to be case updates, but I don't think I have any. I think I'm just I can't get out of this mindset and the true crime reality that I'm living in right now, mm-hmm. a motion was just filed to have this person removed from prison while they await trial 
because they were originally remanded without bond. So no way to bond out before trial. So uh, the motion is filed to get them put into a halfway house or into 24-hour custodial supervision outside of the prison because they do not believe that they can receive adequate COVID prevention at the prison. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mighty have fallen a halfway house. Wow. I know. Well, that's basically what the motion says is yeah. this person was mighty before they killed somebody. So they should be in a halfway house. Fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting, right? I read the motion like three times today and I was like, this makes no sense, but okay. As like kind of a fuck you to put them in a halfway house or as like a they don't deserve to be in prison kind of thing. Roger Stone level thing. Either, really, because it's like, okay, what privileges this person above others who are in the same jail? Mm-hmm. You know, like, why should they be removed while others are not? Mm-hmm. Um, while they may also be awaiting trial. And I also know this person to be extremely whiny. So, like, that's <laughs> cutting my a little bit. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So not on the level of like, you know, the QAnon guy that had to be moved to a different prison because they couldn't guarantee him organic food. But like, I hate that guy more than anyone in the world. Same. Same. But like almost to that level. So yeah, but I just thought that was interesting. So I've just been like delving into that all day. And we also need to announce our very exciting giveaway. (laughs) Yes, we do. You want to go? You want to go for it and explain things? Yes, I will do my best. So uh, basically, in celebration of how excited we are to have such wonderful listeners and just how excited we are with life in general and... You know, we're experiencing all this joy as a result of this project, and we want to share that joy. So this episode will be dropping on March 4th, 2020, which is when our giveaway will begin. You will see giveaway posts on both Facebook and Instagram. If you comment on... God damn it. Puppy. If you guys hear extraneous noises, it is murder boxer. Yeah. Oh my gosh, she's in my yucca plant again. One day, she will be as chill as this blade-ass senior beagle. Yeah. Anyway, murder (laughs) beagle and murder boxer would love for you to comment on our giveaway posts on Facebook and or Instagram with your favorite true crime tale ever. And each comment will be worth one entry into a giveaway for some Midwestern made and crafted goods, along with some Midwretched merch, including a beautiful coffee tumbler. Yay! Um, And for every friend you tag in said post, we will add another entry. So that means you you will get more chances to win when you tag your friends. Exactly. And then a winner will be announced on Friday, March 19th. Yay, that's exciting. It is really exciting. And there'll be one winner per platform. So uh, if you like us in both spaces, you could possibly win on Facebook and Instagram and be swimming in Midwretched stuff, which sounds amazing. Who doesn't want Midwretched tumblers and stickers and other cool stuff that we're still deciding on? Yeah, totes. Because... We want it to be all Midwest crafted because mm-hmm. we got to, you know, support our space here. 
and uh, we want to see where the spooky winds take us on this one. So yeah, and we want to hear your stories, what stories you love, so that maybe we can add them to our list. Absolutely. And even if they're outside the Midwest, we can just add them to our like daily reading because God knows we never stop reading this stuff. So God, no, never, ever. Yeah. So please, we'll be so excited to hear from you. We always are anyway. Woo. Woo. Yeah. So that's exciting. I don't know if that provides us a clean segue into your story today or not, but I'm ready for it because this is weird. Um, it is a weird story. Before we go into a weird story, I have a little oh and a little correction. Oh, what did you do? On our very last episode, as I was <laughs> editing it, I think I mentioned, I was like, oh, this reminds me of like William Byers' dad. William Byers is the kid from Stranger Things. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely meant to say Christopher Br- Byers' father. Oh. Christopher Byers, the boy who was murdered in the one West Memphis Three murders, and his father, John Mark Byers. Wow, that that is an ope, dude. I'm not even going to lie. <laughs> I was editing it, and I was like, that does not sound right. Yeah, no, good catch, good catch. And uh, we're definitely sorry um, about that one. Whoops. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, slip of the tongue. Names, names are things. Yeah. Yeah, and they um, are difficult. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, mm. so yeah. I'm going to slide right in with all of the smoothness that I have in my body. Yeah, go ahead and slide in. Um, so today, I'm very excited to share this story with you. I first heard of this story all the way back in 1994 on the greatest show of all time, Unsolved Mysteries. Ugh, the best. With the soothing yet authoritative voice of Robert Stack. And his gorgeous, gorgeous face. He told me the story of one man's mysterious disappearance in a mysterious factory. Mm. Today we are covering the story of the death of David Box. <laughs> so... Obviously, this story spoke to my little conspiracy-loving seven-year-old mind, and I would never forget it. And I thought, guess I thought the rest of the world had forgotten it, because it is just a strange little story about a small town in Ohio. Mm, which is some of the best stories, really. But more recently, this case was actually covered pretty extensively in season three of the accused podcast oh really yeah which is made by the cincinnati inquirer and i really really highly recommend that entire series it's Hmm. a great really systemic look at the factory we're going to talk about the community and what might have happened to david box interesting okay cool So this is a case that has sat unsolved for 37 years. Wow. And while there has been tons of investigation, investigators and the family both believe they know what happened. Unfortunately, their theories on what happened are worlds apart. Interesting. So let's travel down semi-south to Fernald, Ohio. (laughs) It's about 10 miles northwest of Cincinnati, near the indiana border oh it's right in that little pocket where ohio kentucky and indiana meet yeah kentuckiana 
beautiful. Oh my God, it's so pretty. I love driving there. It is gorgeous down there. Now, if you visit Fernald today, you're going to find a very beautiful nature preserve, lots of wetlands and lots of local wildlife. It's very idyllic. Pretty. But if you were to travel back in time to 1984, what you would find in Fernald, Ohio, is one of the country's biggest players in the Cold War nuclear arms race. What? Yep. Really? The Fernald Feed Materials Plant, also known as NLO, or National Lead of Ohio. Mm. Now, this factory stood out from its surrounding farm and small town setting with a very large water tower emblazoned with a red and white checkered pattern. Mm. Now, new dog mom, what do you think of when you see a red and white checkered pattern? As a new dog mom? Yeah. A red and white checkered pattern? Uh, I don't know. Why would it's I the Purina label? Oh no, I'm a dog food snob. She doesn't eat that. <laughs> no offense, people. No offense. Purina is quality dog food. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. We actually have a dog food plant here in town. I think it might be a Purina plant. Actually, are you sure? Because that's what the people of Fernald thought that this plant was. Oh, really? Between that red and white checkered pattern and the plant name, the Fernald Feed Materials Plant, Mm. everybody just thought that it produced dog food for Purina. Mm. NLO just kind of let people believe that. Interesting. But behind the scenes, what it really produced was uranium. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh. So the Fernald processed uranium for nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. The factory was originally built in 1951 at the height of Cold War fever. And back when it was first built, the residents of Fernald were really excited. They felt very patriotic mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. Yeah, because that was, you know, like Cold War. We're going to build a bunker and defeat the commies. Yeah, and people really would have cared about being a part of the war effort, you know? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, But as the Cold War got colder and the average person was kind of less aware of the politics and the shenanigans going on behind the scene, people kind of just forgot and stopped talking about what the plant was doing. Hmm. And after 30 years, the plant kept chugging along, producing uranium. And the people of Fernald kind of moved on with their lives. Interesting. Okay. But it remained a major jobs producer in the area. Mm. And it reportedly paid really, really well. Well, I mean, yeah, you'd think. A full-time job at NLO meant that you could live a middle to upper middle class lifestyle. You could have money for college savings for your kids, for vacations. Something that in that area of Ohio was otherwise really hard to come by. Yeah, like, must be nice. Okay. And especially in the 80s, when we were kind of on the downslope of a lot of that factory production. Yeah. The region of Ohio was actually home to a lot of big factories, like Procter & Gamble, Formica, the Cincinnati Type Foundry, and at Mm. one point, um, NCR, National Cash Register, because the cash register was invented in Ohio. I remember us sitting on a giant cash register at a park in Dayton. Yes. We like to put cash registers in places. Yeah, I remember that. That's one of my favorite statues in Tate. 
NLO just kind of like let the residents forget what they were doing mm. and maintained this kind of passive denial of what was happening at the plant. Everybody will kind of ask, they're like, what the hell was this uranium processing plant doing in the middle of Ohio? Yeah. But it's actually kind of a perfect location if you think about it. If they're processing uranium that's going to be shipped out and used in missiles, all of this had to be produced in separate places anyway for strategic reasons. Mm. And Wright Pat is about an hour up the road, Mm -hmm. which is one of the biggest like military and engineering centers in the country. So... Now, Fernald was a private plant, but it was basically completely overseen by the Department of Energy. Like, their only customer was the Department of Energy. Mm, Okay. And in the days of the Cold War, safety and oversight were uh, different. Oh, boy, were they. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Things like OSHA and worker safety programs were not exactly what they are today. Yeah, cute ideas, you know. And keep in mind that all the people working at this factory are private citizens, not military or federal agents. Right. They were told upon hiring that NLO was a low-level radiation plant. (laughs) There were no risks to working there, and they were required to sign contracts stating that they would not talk about their work publicly or even to their family. Wow, you know when your job asks you to sign a non-disclosure agreement that there's definitely no danger involved. Definitely no danger there. No, no. And Fernald would go to reportedly great lengths to ensure that there were no, quote, accidents reported at the plant. And we'll get into those a little bit later. Mm. So we're going to meet our main man here, David Box. Okay. David Box was born in Staten Island in 1944 to devout Catholic parents, Anne and Russell Box, who sound adorable. Mm-hmm. He was the middle of three boys living in a very idyllic American family. His parents were together forever until both of them passed away. They were very loving. They were a very close family. When he was a kid, the family moved to Ohio where they would all remain together basically until today, like generations down the line. Hmm. Box rocked the Buddy Holly look. Let me tell you about this. <laughs> Young pictures of him. He's got these great thick horn-rimmed glasses. Uh-huh. This like, you know, the quaffed hair. Great yes. look. I love that look. He had these very thick glasses, which only corrected the vision in his left eye. He was legally blind in his right eye, mm. which prevented him from serving in Vietnam, which... I think kind of for him, working in the Fernald plant kind of made up for that sense of patriotism that he lost. Yeah, you still feel like you're giving back. Yeah. He was a really tall, lanky guy. He had big ears. He was kind of awkward. Honestly, I think he looked like my dad. Um, <laughs> he sounds like your dad. <laughs> stocky, broad-shouldered. Very not that part. <laughs> hey, my people are very broad-shouldered. Yeah, your dad is kind of an aged string bean, though, you know? Yeah, with a beer gut to go with it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he was uh, David Box, not my dad, although also my dad, (laughs) um, was described as a pretty quiet, nerdy guy. He didn't have a ton of friends, but he tended to be pretty okay with that. He had more insular hobbies, more personal kind of introvert hobbies. He was apparently really into CB radio, and he would spend hours upon hours... (laughs) in the basement late at night contacting people from all over the world oh and this was his social world was awesome yeah which i think is really cool 
<laughs> he was so cute too. I just looked up his Buddy Holly look. Really adorable. Um, he wasn't known to be very talkative or very chatty, um, but he was always focused on his work and he was very dependable. Mm. Now, when he was in his early 20s, he met Carlene Nogler and the two eventually married and had three children of their own. And he thought he was on the path to basically living the same idyllic life that his parents had. Mm. He had their three children, Tony, Casey and Matt. Like I said, it was Bach's dream. This is the family he always wanted. Now, Sadly, Bach struggled with a lot of alcohol abuse and alcoholism. Mm. Something that, as their marriage went on, especially when his kids were young, caused a lot of strife between him and Carlene. Mm. You know, he was described as he wasn't an angry drunk. He wasn't, you know, aggressive in any way, shape, or form. But he just wasn't dependable. Yeah. So even though David tried really hard to make things work and he really wanted to try everything to work out his marriage with Carlene, because he was a devout Catholic, he was really, really stuck on, I want to be in one marriage until I die and I want to be with the person that I love. Mm -hmm. It just couldn't work out between him and Carlene. And yeah, I know. And the two ended up divorcing. Mm. But in the end, it kind of ended up being one of those relationships that got better after the divorce. Oh, yeah, I love Which that. I feel like if that's how it's going to go, that is the absolute best way. Yeah, totally. I'm living that dream and it's awesome. Oh, isn't that such a good dream? Yeah, it's the best. They stayed close friends. They had an awesome relationship. They would talk regularly. Mm-hmm. David was a super active dad. His kids would tell, in the Accused podcast, his, te- his kids tell great stories about just how involved he was. He would go out of his way to make things work for them, to cheer them up. One of his sons, I think it was Tony, kind of tells this story about how he absolutely loved to play music. David didn't understand it. He didn't get it, whatever, but mm-hmm. he supported his son. And Tony asked for new guitar strings for Christmas. So David got them for him. And as he was trying to restring the guitar, he broke it. And Mm -hmm. he was just like absolutely brokenhearted that he just destroyed this guitar. So David worked some overtime, made the money, and took Tony to the guitar store and said, pick out whatever you want. And I'm like, that's "That's the sweetest thing ever. Yeah, it really is. (laughs) David was, after the divorce, able to get sober from alcohol. Mm. Now, he chose to do this cold turkey, which is actually really dangerous, Mm -hmm. um, depending on how much you use. It's one of the reasons why if you're going to kind of detox off alcohol, we always recommend going to a doctor, going to the hospital. Mm. Because he ended up with some severe complications, including experiencing hallucinations and likely experiencing what we call delirium tremens which is the sudden onset of severe effects um, within a few days of stopping heavy alcohol use. This can include convulsions, high blood pressure, confusion, delusions, hallucinations, that sort of thing. Wow, I did not know it got that bad. Oh, it can get really, really bad. Wow. No, I had no idea that there would be hallucinations involved. I associate that with like coming off of really hard drugs. No, actually, alcohol is one of the most dangerous substances to come off if you have a severe uh, dependence problem. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, I did not know that. 
So when this happened, David was hospitalized and sent to the psychiatric ward to complete his detox. Mm. But even after detox, he's continued to experience a lot of struggles, Mm. a lot of that disorientation, a lot of that confusion. He was eventually evaluated by a psychiatrist who had an interesting take. He said that David was likely drinking so heavily to self-medicate and that he believed that David Box had schizophrenia. Hmm. Now, at first, I kind of questioned this diagnosis only because professionally I've seen DTs misdiagnosed as schizophrenia. Yeah. And it can really kind of mess with some people just in their medical history and their treatment afterward. Mm. But Box kept consistently working with his psychiatrist, Clifford Grulet. Really, for literally the rest of his life, he worked with this psychiatrist. That's awesome. Good for him. Right? He was prescribed Trilophon which is kind of an older antipsychotic. We don't use it as much anymore. But he continued to work with a psychiatrist and stick on this medication. And he did great. Hmm. Now, of course, through the course of his treatment, he would still have some pretty severe ups and downs. Yeah. He had a few suicide attempts Hmm. over the next few years, including one that occurred shortly after both of his parents died within a pretty short span of each other. Yeah, that's so Uh, sad. Yeah, he was really, really struggling. And it was in 1980, he was hospitalized for a month where he continued to work with his treatment team. He continued to just really, really work to get better. Mm. He remained on medication, which seemed to be effective. And eventually, as he continued working with his team, being consistent in his care, his symptoms really subsided. His dosage of the medication continued to be decreased until about it was eight milligrams per day, Mm -hmm. which was the dosage that he was taking at his time of death. Oh, okay. Now, it's important to note that he had a history of mental illnesses Mm -hmm. and suicide attempts. I wanted to be known and kind of pointed out that by all accounts, including his psychiatrist and his family, David was doing awesome at the time of his death. Mm, Okay. So I want to just, in all fairness, put his history out there. He had this diagnosis of schizophrenia, but he was working actively with the treatment team and he was checking in with all the right people. By all accounts, he was a very healthy person. Mm. Yeah, doing all the right things. Mm-hmm. Now we get to David Box at Fernald. Mm. So uh, just a clarifying question. Mm-hmm. Is Fernald like an actual town or is it kind of an unincorporated area? Because when I look at it on the map, mm-hmm. it's not labeled. It is technically a town. Okay. It's It's a town that sits between two different counties. So I think that technically it is unincorporated. Okay, that makes sense. It's actually kind of important to note that it sits between two different counties. So it sits between Crosby County and Hamilton County. Mm. Hamilton County also houses Cincinnati. So that will come into play when we talk about the investigation and all of that. Okay, that makes sense then. Yep. So David began working at the Fernald Feed Plant in 1981. Mm. Now, again, he was known as a hard worker. He liked to work with his hands, which made him great at his job as a pipe fitter. Mm. 
You know, he was especially proud of the work because we're now in the height of the Reagan era. And if Reagan did nothing else, damn, he sold the nuclear arms, right? Yes. Yes, he sure did. He sure did. (laughs) And he had us all convinced that the new one, not all, my dad, most people's dads. So he, at this point... Everybody still believes that being a part of the nuclear arms race is still super patriotic and blah, blah, blah. It also obviously made him good money to support his family. Um, He got to feel like he was giving back. He, by all reports, loved working at the plant. He was fighting the Ruskies. Yes, he was. He sure Uh, was. Now, as a pipe fitter, Box was basically responsible for installing and maintaining the vast piping system of the plant. Okay. Yes. Which was, at this point, over 30 years old. So there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. It was not a well-maintained nuclear plant. So it's interesting, too, that, and I'm sure, like, I I know a little bit about this, but not a ton. So I wonder, like, that would be a job at that plant that would not necessarily involve you learning a lot of secrets, I would think. No. Like, you're working on the infrastructure of the plant, not the product produced by the plant, you know? Correct. By all accounts of the people who worked there, they checked in, they got their work assignment, and then they kept their noses to the ground while they did their work assignment. Mm -hmm. Well, they did dumb things like throwing apples into nuclear cores. But yeah. yeah. (laughs) What else are you going to do? But yeah, it was not something that he knew a lot of the ins and outs about. Like he signed his paperwork and his, you know, um, non-disclosure agreements. But he didn't necessarily know all that was going on there. And nobody did. I think it was very strategically sectioned off and you were given strategically limited information. Oh, yeah. Like you work on your part and... You don't know necessarily what somebody else's part is. No, it's like, hey, David, go to plant six, tighten these pipes, replace this one and go home. Now, David worked the the small third shift crew, which meant that he would often work completely alone. Mm. Now, this was the one I was telling my partner about. And he was like, no, you don't ever work alone, especially not in a big, dangerous factory. He's like, that's not true. That's not safe. That would never happen. That's so funny. I feel like that's such a teacher headspace (laughs) because we're literally never alone. But there's plenty of places, I think, where that would be perfectly realistic. Mm -hmm. I think that now you would never be alone on a job like this. Mm, Yeah, but back then. I've known a number of plumbers and like electricians and whatnot now. And they're like, no, you always go in pairs of two Mm. just in case. But in the 80s, this would not surprise me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Not to mention that Fernald was not known for its worker safety practices. Right. I'm guessing that was not a super high priority when, like, keeping (laughs) government secrets is on your dock. (laughs) You had some other things to do. (laughs) Suffice it to say that shortly after David's death the plant would close down in part due to its atrocious safety practices Mm. and complete lack of care for workers well-being well that's probably a good thing there's just so many things that fernald did not care about that they spent millions of dollars trying to cover up yikes yeah and this is where i'll like 
recommend people listen to the accused podcast because we don't have time to go into it. But outside of Box's case, there are literally dozens of air pollution, water pollution, Mm -hmm. um, worker safety lawsuits. This place was a fucking mess. Interesting. And kind of a menace to its community if all those things really happened. A complete menace to its community. Mm. Um, But back to David. Yeah. (laughs) Um, David Box worked the third shift, like I said. He also lived about 30 miles away in Loveland. Mm. So he carpooled with his fellow worker, Harry Easterling. Okay. Harry and David would meet in a White Castle parking lot that was about midway between the two of them. One would leave their car in the parking lot, and they would drive the rest of the way together. Hmm. Would they get a Crave case first? Probably. I would. I would, too. Actually, no, I fucking hate White Castle. (sighs) I don't. Blasphemy. I know. Culver's. Ew. What? You don't like Culver's? I don't like the butter thing. Uh, Like, why would you butter a cheeseburger? It's good. No. (laughs) I'm not with that. I'm going to get a lot of hate for that. But Anyway, why would you put chickens in, chicken in ring form? Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's a fair question. <laughs> and to be honest, that's not something I would eat from there, but but I, I hear your question, and I um, absorb it. Anyway, spicy chicken tenders and cheese curds for the win. Mm. So they would get their Crave case, and then they would go to work. <laughs> perfect they would at the end of the shift meet back up in the locker rooms um, and head home together and this was kind of their daily routine it saved them mm-hmm. both on gas so. were they friends or just kind of like okay they were buddies they would chat and talk like i said david was kind of quiet kind of awkward but mm-hmm. harry seemed to be totally chill with him like they liked each other yeah so a good like casual work friendship maybe not a bromance but maybe like a bros with benefits <laughs> Perfect. The benefit being the grave case. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Which is probably the benefit in all romances. Yeah, really, when you boil down to it. <laughs> so all of this worked really well until late one shift in 1984. Mm. June 18th, 1984. Earlier that day, Dave had spent the day with his two younger kids. The oldest had already moved out of the house Um, So he would kind of stop by and hang out, but he wouldn't stay the whole day. The younger kids tended to spend the entire weekend with their dad. Mm. Yay, divorce dad weekends. The two younger kids, they recalled nothing particularly special about that day. They said it was a pretty boring dad weekend. They went to the grocery store. They talked about an upcoming vacation to Florida. All that good stuff. David dropped the kids off back with Carlene a little bit early so that he could get in a nap before his shift. He then met Harry at White Castle as per usual. They got to the plant, clocked in at their normal time, changed into their work clothes, went through the sanitizing showers. They went to their work meeting where they were handed their assignments and they separated. Okay. And David headed to his assignments in plant six where he was to do the piping repairs. At some point in the night, some point between midnight and 4 a.m., a coworker whose name we don't have saw David sitting outside in a truck with his supervisor. The coworker noticed that the windows were rolled up 
And he made a mental note of it because it was June. It was hot. It was muggy. And he was like, why would you have the windows up? It's disgusting out here. Yeah. Okay. So he also noticed that while he couldn't hear what David and the supervisor were talking about, that it seemed like a really heated conversation. Mm. We know that that happened before 4 a.m. Because 4 a.m. was when David had his lunch break. Those overnight shifts are so strange. Overnight yeah, shifts, that's man. That's going to be so tough, yeah. <laughs> so David met back up with Harry, his buddy, mm-hmm. and his manager, Charles Schaus, for their meal break. Okay. Now, there's different stories here. According to Harry Easterling, David seemed upbeat. He was his normal level of kind of quiet introvert chatty Mm -hmm. he was showing off his new lunchbox (laughs) Um, and he you know chatted about his upcoming vacation plans to go to Florida with his kids Harry says that he was with David until David finished his meal and then the two split off and went back to their respective assignments Mm. now Shouse his manager you have a question? Yeah, was Shouse the same manager that he was having the heated conversation in the car with, or would that be a different person? We don't know. Oh. There was a lot of lack of police follow-up in this one. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah. Oh, I don't like that. Okay. No. Shouse said David seemed despondent. Hmm. He also said that David ate an extra sandwich that night as if it was his last meal. Uh, That's a weird thing to say. That seems like a really weird connection. Yeah. Sometimes you need an extra Sammy at 4 a.m. I've been there and I don't even work third shift. Yeah, yeah, seriously, especially if that's your schedule. No judgment whatsoever, man. Nope. Mm -hmm. So Shouse said that after that break, he spent an extra 10 minutes with David trying to get him to open up about why he was so despondent and sad. But Harry described him as his normal affect, right? Yes. Okay, okay. And these three were eating together. Mm-hmm. So, so Harry would know, even if we give Shouse the benefit of the doubt, Harry would know better what David's yeah. mindset would be or what his like normal affect would be. Yeah. David's a quiet guy. Like one person seeming despondent to one person is just like, oh, I know they're kind of, they're just quiet, you know. As being that kind of person, I've had many, many people tell me like, oh, you seem down. Are you okay? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. just what I am. Yeah, I'm just existing. Yeah. Anyway, those two stories will kind of come into play. Mm. So what all that we do know is that David clocked back in from his lunch break at 4.46 a.m. Okay. And that would have been within that 10 minutes that Shouse was supposedly talking to him. Mm. And that was that clock in was the last time that David Box was officially seen. Wow. Okay. Box was seen from his clock in heading to section four of the plant. Section four housed a, a piece of equipment called a Nusol vat. Mm. Basically, what this vat is, is a very large vat <laughs> filled with a slurry of sodium chloride and potassium chloride heated to 1350 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Why? It was used to shape and mold chunks of uranium called ingots. Huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that was the exact temperature that it needed to be in order to shape and mold the ingots. It looks dangerous. It is incredibly dangerous. <laughs> now, normally, this entire thing is covered with a heavy piece of metal. Mm. And so that all you could see is, I'm going to share another screen with you. And all I could find of this was a, was a drawing. So normally, this is all that it looks like. Gotcha. So basically, it's a closed... Like, it's a big square, and you can see how hot it is mm-hmm. when it's open. You can see that, like, red-hot stuff in the middle, but then there's, like, a metal sheet that would cover it, like a door. Yeah, and so that metal sheet covers everything except for a 9-inch by 22-inch opening. Okay. So think of two pieces of notebook paper. Mm-hmm. Side by side. Yeah, got it. Somebody noticed David going to section four specifically because they're like, hey, he's supposed to be assigned to, like we said before, section six. Mm. So somebody noticed it. It was out of the blue. But again, it's one of those things you don't necessarily process because it's like, I don't know what his assignments are for the day. Like, Right. Yeah. So he was headed toward this sodium chloride, potassium chloride, new solvat. Mm. Um. Like I said, typically it was covered with that concrete lid that was about three inches thick of concrete. That lid was... Concrete or steel? Concrete. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes. So, okay. Very, very difficult to move. Incredibly difficult. Um, It was only ever removed with heavy, like, lifting equipment when the vat was in use. Okay. Um, When it wasn't in use, like I said, it had that 22 by 9 inch opening. Mm. You could, so you could see inside, but it wasn't usable at that time. Remember, 22 by 9 inches. Yeah. Its primary purpose, however, although they, it was used to shape ingots, otherwise was to have workers throw apple cores in it to watch them explode. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, you got to entertain yourself. So uh, <laughs> at 1,350 degrees... Water vaporizes Mm. um, and causes the apple core to explode before it even hits the slurry. So, like, it gets in the air and it explodes. That's that's actually pretty cool, though. It's pretty fucking cool, right? The water expands and bursts any encasement that it's in. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. That's That's pretty fucking cool. Um, Although they played these fun games with it, the vat was very, very closely monitored to be at a constant 1,350 degrees. Mm -hmm. And it it was programmed to never vary more than a degree or two. Wow. So when at 5.10 a.m., somebody noticed that the vat recorded a 28-degree drop in temperature, that was a little weird. Yeah, that is weird. So the vat drops 28 degrees. It recovers a little bit and then drops another 26 degrees just a few minutes later and then recovers again and back to its constant 1350. Weird. Okay. The cat just bit my foot. That's why I made that face. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, I thought I was fascinating. <laughs> no, it is fascinating. Because <laughs> I'm like, what would cause that decrease and then... A second leveling and then decrease. Yeah. Mm. It didn't fully level. I will say that. Mm, Okay. So 
Engineer Robert Spenceley was in charge of this machinery. Um, he said that at the time of the readouts was about 10 minutes off. So this is, will tell you how like well-maintained this machinery was. Oh, wow. 10 minutes off. Even I fix my clocks by the time they're 10 minutes off. Yeah, that's bad. So the readout said 5, 10 a.m. Robert Spenceley said that that probably occurred closer to 5 a.m. Mm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Fast forward slightly to 7 a.m. Remember, now we're on June 19th. Yeah. Near the end of the shift, there was a safety meeting in Plant 4. Harry Easterling attended it, but he didn't see David. Hmm. After the meeting, Harry went back to the locker room, and he saw Dave's toolbox was open and his keys were in the locker. Hmm. Harry tried to wait as long as he could. He waited from about 7 or 8 a.m. until 10.45, waiting for David. That's a good friend. That is a good friend. I can't promise I would wait that long for you. Yes, you would. Tell me you would. I would, but I'd be really annoyed. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't wait four hours for me? Yeah, you would. I probably would. Anyway. But anyway, Harry Easterling is a good friend. But he finally left because he had an appointment to get to. Mm. He tried calling David through security. He let the secretary know. Basically said, hey, let David know that I have to go home and I'll meet him at White Castle tonight, like, as as per usual. Mm. He also left a note for David in his toolbox that said, basically... I had to leave. I waited until 1045. I'll see you tonight. Yeah. Now at 730 a.m., one of the furnace workers in section four, which again houses the new solve vat, checks in on his equipment and finds an unknown sticky substance covering the vat. Oh, God. He reports the substance along with a strange smell to his supervisor. Oh, God. The supervisor says, eh, get back to work. Of course he does. Good. Very good. And, and that's all that happens there. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Until Bill Welch comes into work. Bill Welch, he is usually the first worker to check on the vat in the next shift. Okay. He checks in the vat for the morning shift to make sure that it's ready for production for daytime. Mm-hmm. He also noticed the slurry and said that it looked odd. He looked in. It wasn't just red. There was that weird black sticky stuff and a sooty crust that he had never seen before. Oh. And a few light colored things mixed Mm. in there. Oh, this is not good. Now, when David Allen, another supervisor, came over, they lifted the concrete lid and saw the same stuff. He shrugged it off. And started production for the day. Wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, I obviously don't know enough about any of this stuff to know whether or not that would, like, even be impactful to production. But I feel like if anything is weird about your machinery, even if you don't think anything nefarious is going on, you you check on that. Because that's, I mean, you don't exactly run across new solvats every day. Like, I imagine that's going to be kind of, if something goes down with that, it's going to be a tough fix, you know? I was going to say, I would imagine you would at least just want your machinery working properly, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't, apparently we care more about these things than the nuclear energy department. 
Well, that's comforting. That's very comforting. Glad it's not 1984. Uh, not that we're a whole lot better off now, but I'm trying really hard not to sing the David Bowie song. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. I don't know whether to encourage you to stop or or keep going. It's an underrated album. Diamond Dogs is an underrated album. I'm just going to put it out there. The next evening, Harry Easterling gets to White Castle. Not even knowing anything's weird. All he knows is Dave's probably mad at me. Mm. So Harry heads to White Castle. He sees David's car parked in the same spot it was in. Mm. He waits a minute, expecting David to kind of be mad at him, or maybe he went inside for food or whatever but he waits he waits and then he finally gets out and he's not goes to knock on david's car window yeah and then nobody answers and then so he looks inside doesn't see david inside touches the hood of the car and notices that it's cold oh which means it has not been driven yeah (sighs) so he heads to work And as soon as he gets to work, he notifies his supervisor that David is missing. Mm. So finally, it wasn't until the next day, June 20th, that a proper search is done for David Box. Wow. His family is notified of his disappearance. Carlene was called as his ex-wife is his next of kin. Mm -hmm. She tried to reach her children who were actually spending the day with her boyfriend in Churchill Downs in Kentucky. Mm. They didn't answer because Churchill Downs is a incredibly like bustly, busy, loud place to be. So they paged them over the intercom, but the kids didn't hear it. And so it wasn't until they got home that night. So this is two, three days after David's gone, dis- gone missing that they're all finally made aware that he's gone. Mm. Apparently, the kids said that they didn't even consider like it did not even pass their mind that he might be dead. Yeah. They thought that maybe he missed a shift. You know, worst case scenario in their minds was that maybe he relapsed. I mean, yeah, like it sounds like this is the hard thing about like adult missing person cases. You know, like as much as we don't want it to be that way, there are also like many reasons that an adult would just not be around for a few days. You know, exactly. Like police don't move like they do for kids for good reason, you know? Yeah. I feel like, and David Box is the perfect type of person who you could make a lot of excuses for him not answering the phone. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. He just doesn't feel like talking that day. He was, you know, got really into his CB radio thing, whatever. Catching up on all of his sleep, you know, whatever. So they assume he's going to come back, like he's going to be found. Yeah. When investigators were finally called, they got two calls. They got their first call from Larry DeVere, a security officer at the plant. And the second call from Fernald's legal department. (laughs) Mm, Of course. Hamilton County investigators were finally called in. Now, this is where we're going to meet Hamilton County Sheriff Detective Pete Alderucci. Okay. Alderucci answered to two senior detectives, both of whom had FBI experience. Alderucci himself was no stranger to grisly murder investigations. And like I mentioned before, Fernald, while it's a pretty rustic area, Hamilton County also houses Cincinnati, which is one of the biggest cities in the state and is, mm, it has history. 
Yeah, stuff happens. In- Lots of stuff happens in Cincinnati. So Alderucci doesn't get to play the rural cop card. Eh, okay. I'm ra- activating my rage Activate pocket. that rage pocket. I have a feeling. When investigators get to the scene, they learn of the black sludge in the new saw vat and immediately ordered it cleaned and drained. Now, it took another three full days to cool and drain the vat. Wow. So it wasn't until June 23rd that investigators were finally able to investigate the hardened sludge, which at that point had dried, and they had to use chisels and an air hammer to remove the chunks from the oven. Good night. Grizzly, grizzly task. Yeah. When they finally got the pieces down to identifiable fragments, they were able to identify pieces of a walkie-talkie, a wire from a pair of safety glasses, an alligator clip from his name tag, the steel toes and eyelets from his work boots. They also found fragments of bone, which were identified by two separate medical bodies to be pieces of collarbone, of human collarbone. Oh, wow. Now, a lot of people on the interwebs have said this has to be fake. This has to be, you know, some kind of conspiracy. Otherwise, why would these metal things still be in there? The steel toes, the copper, the wires all have higher melting points between 1375 and 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, which is why they're still there. Uh, Got it. Okay. So totally plausible for them to survive. Totally plausible. Very simple fact check, guys. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. Please don't. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just, uh, I saw the Elisa Lamb documentary and I was so infuriated. I can't even go there. That case just makes me so It makes mad. me so mad what people did to that case. And, okay. Yeah. I will say, as I was writing this up, I was like, I don't want to go down the Elisa Lamb route. Mm, I don't yeah. want to go full-blown crazy conspiracy because I think that any time you're investigating or talking about murder versus suicide versus disappearance... Yeah. Versus accident. Versus accident. Your mind can play up a whole lot of distortions and excuses and I really just want to go with the facts yes exactly and the facts in the Elisa Lamb case um, unpopular opinion I know but when you look at the facts of that case especially the body there's not a single sign of foul play and there is every single sign of somebody in deep psychological distress the dyskinesia, exactly. that piano playing hand, is a giveaway. The way her hand is contorting, a trained eye will tell you that's dyskinesia. That's part of her symptomology. Yeah, and I just think it doesn't take... It doesn't take I a know, trained eye. It doesn't eye take that me. much to come to that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the great thing to have the trained eye, but you don't even need it for this. You just need to not be lazy and not be like privileging conspiracy over fact and it just does such a disservice to that girl's memory and it just pisses me off. So I I, I will put it out there. I was very kind of acutely aware of that in my mind as I was writing all of this up. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that go into this that we'll briefly talk about, but I don't want to give them a ton of credence. That's fair. So not only did they have to wait three days to even start the proper investigation, but because of the nature of the plant, investigators had genuinely very limited time with the evidence. Evidence had to be surveyed for radiation before even leaving the plant. 
And there was fear of radiation contamination every single time investigators touched the evidence. One of the quotes that I thought was really interesting from the Cincinnati Inquirer was, for once it wasn't fear that the police would contaminate the evidence, but fear that the evidence would contaminate the police. Oh, that's a cool good quote. quote. Good job, Cincinnati. Yeah, I like that. So each individual officer was limited to hands-on handling of 13 hours of actual contact. I also want to put it out there. So officers were limited to 13 hours. These men were working at this plant. And I, I say men because it was almost exclusively men working in the plant. Mm-hmm. They were there eight hours a day. Yeah, with I'm sure little to no protection. Oh my gosh, extremely limited protection. So those were the very, very practical problems of investigating this. Yeah. There was also the problem that NLO was contracted by the Department of Energy. And obviously they were the big guns when it came to 1980s nuclear power. Yeah. Like I mentioned before, Fernald workers were all under contract that they couldn't talk about the nature of their work. One employee recalled that they were under penalty of $10,000 in five years in prison if they breached this contract. Good Lord. That doesn't seem legal, but okay. It... <sighs> Here's the thing. When it comes to a a criminal investigation, it's not. Non-disclosure agreements cannot hide criminal activity. But it won't stop a company from threatening you. And most people don't know that distinction. So They don't know that distinction. And let's be straightforward. These are all like working class families that aren't willing to risk it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't think most people can, yeah. but to be honest. Yeah. So now, according to the accused podcast, which, like I said, goes into great depth on this case, there is a really thick investigation file. So looking at the evidence, looking at the situation, but a lot of the workers at the plant would say that they were never interviewed. Hmm. Initially, the plant and the police would come out and say that this was an accident. NLO's internal investigation, however, would kind of twist that again. So NLO's internal investigation stated this. In viewing the situation at the salt bath furnace, the 56-inch height of the furnace would have required climbing effort to get the opening of the salt bath. In addition to get oneself into the salt bath with the lid on top of it, as it was found, would not only have required effort to climb atop the bath, one would have to endure the heat and work at entering the tank through the small opening left when the cover is in place. Mr. Box had no business in Plant 6 since his assigned work was in Plant 8, and Plant 6 was unoccupied during Mr. Box's work shift. There appears to be no reasonable way that Mr. Box could have accidentally gotten into the salt bath. Mm -hmm. On the contrary, it would have required a very determined mental and physical effort on his part to accomplish this act. So, based on that, then the police said, okay, we'll rule out an accident. Mm. There's no way that you can accidentally fall into this vat, and that I have to agree with. Yeah, I mean, you look at an opening that small, like how does a very large man just whoops into that? And it's also up, like it's, it's elevated it's on a platform. It's over four so. feet elevated on a platform. Yeah, you can't trip and fall into it. And if you trip and fell in, you you know, like you fell forward, maybe your arm falls in, but you're no way you're getting a, a man over 200 pounds in that no. thing. No. No. No accident. Okay. Mm -mm. So that leaves mm -mm. two options. 
It's a murder or it's a suicide. Mm -hmm. The family and many other people that worked at NLO felt that Alderucci and the Hamilton County investigators would all too quickly settle on this being a suicide. Yeah. Alderucci said that because there's no evidence of homicide, it has to be a suicide. Mm. Now, most police would tell you, unless you have evidence it's a suicide, you continue to investigate a homicide. Yes. Alderucci's conclusion was that David dove into the vat. Oh, come on. Perfect little pin dive into the vat. No. Now... No. Okay, I am five foot eight, 180 pounds. I'm, I'm slightly smaller than David Box. Yeah. My shoulders are 21 inches. Mm. Now, because I'm crazy, I taped this out on my floor. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. There's no way. Yeah. There's no way. I, so no. I taped this out on my floor. And then on the accused podcast, they actually built like a two by four model and they found a guy with a similar mm. build as David Box. And the guy was able to kind of squeeze his way under with some kind of shifting. That vat was 1350 <sighs> degrees. Yeah, you're not going to like comfortably shift. I also imagine that it like probably radiates heat to some degree too. So like to be on top of it or near it is going to be uncomfortable. It's not like you're going to be able to like, you know, like you get into a car that's like a little bit too small for you and you like shimmy mm-hmm. a little bit, like, but that's not like an uncomfortable mm-hmm. process, you know, that's realistic, but this is not. I don't buy it. Yeah. Now, my theory on this is I feel like Alderucci came to this decision way too quickly. He stands by it to this day. Mm. It felt like to me that basically what happened was Alderucci learned about David Box's mental health history and his diagnosis of Mm. schizophrenia, his history of suicide attempts, and said, ah, I know what happened. Clearly this was a suicide. Right. Now, we know that David was in consistent care, consistently taking his medications. No one in his family, nor his psychiatrist, nor friends, anybody that had regular contact with him, had noticed any change in behavior that day. Yeah. His medication, when they went to his house and they investigated his house, he he had the correct number of pills left to fill his prescription. The only person who noted that he was, quote, down that day was the one manager, Shouse. Yeah, and that was fishy anyway. That's fishy. So uh, can I ask a just a logistical question real mm-hmm. quick? It seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like there wasn't really a way to verify that what they pulled out of the vat was David other than the fact of process of elimination, right? Like David is missing, we found some bones in the vat, Correct. But there wasn't, like, testing on those remains. No. So DNA testing was not available at the time. And from Mm. what I understand, it wouldn't have been possible at the level of radiation contamination. Yeah. For reference, David Box's family was not allowed to bury the minimal remains that they had they had to be shipped off to a special uh, nuclear waste facility that's how irradiated they were 
That's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's just it's interesting that everyone is like, yeah, it's definitely David though. Yeah, like, that's and clearly I, obviously David. it is, but yeah. So one of the conspiracies out there that I didn't include a ton of notes on was that they weren't human bones, they were chicken bones, and David threw them in there to fake his death and then to kind of walk off into the sunset. No. <laughs> I mean, there's no way to make a chicken bone look like a human collarbone. That, yeah, no. Like, yeah. No. That's crazy. And I don't think that chicken bones quite have the structural integrity of human mm -mm. bones. They're hollow, no. which is why dogs aren't allowed to eat them. Right. They'll disintegrate immediately. So that's a conspiracy theory out there that David Box is sitting in Acapulco drinking margaritas while his yeah. family just wonders where he is yeah that makes no sense so i'm gonna just throw that one in the bin people would kind of question they're like okay if he if he completed suicide how the hell would he have done that yeah now again i want to put some credence to this that yes suicide is more common in people with schizophrenia Sadly. And that is kind of just a fact that we have to contend with. His family would kind of argue this and friends would argue that, no, there is no way that he would have, you know, attempted suicide. He had a full refrigerator full of food. He was planning a vacation. He just bought a new lunchbox. Why would anybody with a new lunchbox attempt suicide? Yeah. And just kind of factually a data and evidence standpoint, none of those things are the reason why I don't think that that's what happened. Right. I hate to say it, but suicide is more often than not, more often than we want to admit, an impulsive act. Mm -hmm. It's decided upon in the moment, which is also why when people express those thoughts, we monitor them closely. We try to get them the services immediately. Yeah. I think saying things like, oh, he was planning a vacation and he bought a new lunchbox were like, they're things that give families hope. But it's the scientific mm. side of this that really makes it hard for me to believe that he didn't complete yeah. suicide. Yeah, I mean, that's my thought, too. Like, just thinking about the and just knowing what we know about what does tend to happen during the completion of suicide. So just from like a physical standpoint, the degree of discomfort to even get into the position to get in there in the first place, mm -hmm. I feel like precludes that entire conclusion anyway. Yeah, and even if we're going to say like there is, you know, a psychotic or delusional process behind this, like in the case of Elisa Lamb, the science that we're going to go into just precludes that from being even a possibility that he would have climbed up this and wiggled himself into it. Yeah. Not to mention that again, in the case of David Box, everybody says he was acting completely normally. There was nothing yeah. out of character. There was no symptomology that family, friends, or doctors could point to that was consistent with what happened so yeah yeah so let's talk about some volcanologists now that that's out of the way <laughs> yes please give me volcanologists so the accused podcast and a lot of other investigators have interviewed multiple engineers chemists and volcanologists about okay what would actually happen if somebody did try to do this 
Basically across the board, they have all said there is no way for somebody to wiggle their way in there. There's no way for you to really even dive in there without there being, for lack of a better term, a mess. Yeah. Now, Accused did a model of this. They built kind of a model that of the two by fours and had somebody with a similar body type as Box try to jump into it. Mm. And he had a really hard time. Like, kind of got his, like, legs in and had to shimmy his hips through and then kind of shimmy his shoulders through. Mm. Again, remember where... At a vat that's four feet off the floor, it's 1,350 degrees Fahrenheit. Do you remember the apples that I mentioned? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Adam Kent, a volcanologist at Kent State University, kind of used the apples as an example of what would happen. That at that heat, at 1,350 degrees, water evaporates before anything else. So Mm. basically what would happen in this situation is that a body waiting over a vat that hot, the water inside of the human body would vaporize and kind of push against the encasement, the skin, and build up pressure and pop. Yeah, yeah. So he said, basically, the pressure becomes so much that the water can't be trapped anymore and the skin explodes. Okay. What that would mean is that that black stuff that they found and that ash, there would have been a whole lot more of that if David Box tried to jump into this vat. Got it. And that was kind of my question that I was trying to figure out how to ask. Mm -hmm. Just like at what proximity to the vat would that process start happening, which also makes it just really impossible to wiggle your way in there. Yeah. So even another scientist from NLO was quoted as saying, the violent expulsion of salt due to the introduction of water into the vat would have resulted in several limbs or fractured bones being ejected from the furnace. Mm, okay. So again, you can't wiggle yourself into that. Like no matter what, yeah. if you get too close to it, things pop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you basically, he said, you basically wouldn't be able to finish the job. You would lose conscious and basically melt from the bottom up to the head. Oof. That's yeah. tough to hear, but it does just make that seem kind of impossible. Mm-hmm. Even others said that even climbing the ladder up to the vat, he would have been burning himself the entire time. Yeah. And that would have left evidence. That would have left right. skin evidence. Even, like, uh, fabric. Yeah, burnt fabric you know? on the ladder. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, I just can't buy it. No, I don't either. Now, the other option is murder. So we need to look at the possible theories for murder. Yes. Now, at some point in this investigation, Alderucci and others would receive an anonymous tip. Mm. Somebody would call and say, you need to talk to David's manager. That manager knows more than what he's saying. 
Good, okay. So the police did, and that was where they got the two stories from Harry Easterling and Charles Schaus. Mm. Unfortunately, they decided to side with Schaus's story. That clearly, oh, he was just, he was having a bad day, something, something. Mm. Harry Easterling would go on to complain that they did not do a thorough interview with him, and he did not feel like Mm. he was being taken seriously. Wow, that's interesting. Now, some of the things that we know about David was that he was a quiet guy. He tended to keep to himself. He was shy. He also had a very strong sense of duty. He was a very rule-bound person. Mm-hmm. He was kind of known as a stickler for rules. And so that fed into a couple more theories. Okay. Just a few weeks before this incident, David had caught a co-worker named Ernie Gibson sleeping on the job. Mm. Now, apparently this was something that David was just like, no, you never do that. That's totally inappropriate. So he reported to his supervisor this event, and Ernie was suspended from work. Got it. Now, okay. Ernie was on suspension at the time of David's death. Mm. The police never followed up on this lead. So we don't know anything else about this. They never interviewed Ernie. And even follow-up investigation, like private investigations, Ernie would never offer any more information. And the Hamilton wow. County detectives thought, eh, eh. Okay, no. Because that's like, that's the second line of questioning after like looking at their friends and close family is... Okay, who may have had an issue with yeah. this person? Who might yeah. have had a problem? Mm-hmm. Ernie Gibson clearly would have had a problem. I'm not saying that he did it, but yeah. that's a line of questioning you need to follow up on. Yeah, and you want to see somebody be eliminated if they need to be eliminated. Exactly. There are other reports that David Box caught drugs being sold at the plant. That that was one of the arguments that he witnessed or he had saw or that was what was going on when he was in the truck. Mm. That he had seen drugs being sold on the plant premises and whoever was selling them murdered him in relation to this. And that the vat was just a convenient way to hide his body. Okay. A less sexy, less conspiratorial story. Yeah. Also probably a more realistic one. Yeah, I was going to say, but a plausible one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, an upsetting one, but a plausible one. One of the things that supports these types of theories is, do you remember what was found in the vat in addition to the bones? Yeah, the eyelets from his shoes and the steel from his boots. Part of his name tag. Part of his name tag. And part of his keys. Right, okay. Now... One of the other things that we know is that when Harry Easterling was waiting for David, he saw in the locker David's keys. Mm. So we know that the two temperature drops in the vat happened right around 5 a.m. But we know that his keys were still in the locker at 7 a.m. And then they somehow ended up in the vat. Hmm, okay. So David couldn't have done that himself if he was in the vat at 5 a.m. Right, yeah. Unless they were somebody else's keys, but then they would track, you know, if somebody reported missing their keys or needing replaced keys, that's Mm going to be fishy. Yeah. Yeah. 
So why would it just is like okay? So if David was in the vat at five a.m., why would his keys then be problematic to whoever did it? I don't know that they would need to go back and that they would need to go back and do that to hide something. Unless Mm. they were trying to sell the story that David just walked off the premise, right? Nah, yeah, I could see that. Mm -hmm. Or if there was some kind of like physical altercation and maybe there was blood on those keys or Mm. something like that. If there was like a fist fight or or something like that. Yeah. The keys are kind Mm. of an important question here because the keys are what to me, on top of just this impracticality of a suicide, somebody had to put those keys into the vat after David Box was already in it. Yeah. So now come the bigger conspiracy theories. Let me add it. The bigger conspiracy theories come with the question of, was David Box going to be a whistleblower? Mm. Now, as we have mentioned, the Fernald factory was less than safe. Right. And David liked to be a rule follower. He felt that the rules were very, very important. If you want to dig more into this in addition to the accused podcast, just a quick Google search will bring you just lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit about the Fernald plant. Mm -hmm. All kinds of water and air pollution cases, deaths related to excessive uranium dust exposure. I could go on and on. Like, one case was just five months after David's death, news broke about all of the safety lapses and how Mm. the plant was guilty of harming its workers and the land. In the fall of 1984, NLO released a massive amount, 200 tons of radioactive dust particles into the air and surrounding water sources. Good Lord. This would go on to make national news. That's so sad. Part of the reason why the Fernald plant site right now is a nature preserve is because it's not safe to live on Mm, people cannot spend more than a few hours there safely so david box he died in july of 1984 it was in i believe september of 1984 that this uh, radioactive dust particle release happened oh so if he knew something as a pipe fitter it's possible that he might have known something like, hey, all of this stuff is weakening and we're not meeting safety standards. And mm. yeah. Okay, so that's an interesting theory. Yeah. Well, I wish we knew who the person he was arguing with in the car was. I do, too. Again, yeah, so many... Yeah, that. that... That lead was never followed up on. It was never pressed to get, you know... I don't know how much security footage they would have had in 1984... But Not much, I'm sure. More interviews, you know, checking in, interviewing every single person that clocked in that day. Mm. Every single person on and off the premise. Because from what the people in the community would say, this was a locked facility. Like, yeah, you had to check in at the gate. The gate had to be unlocked by a security guard. No one got on or off that premise without them knowing. Yeah, yeah. So... Every single one of those people should have been interviewed and accounted for every minute of that night. But again, the investigation didn't even really start until five days after he disappeared. 
Yeah, and that's insane. Because even without a body mm-hmm. or the ability to examine those remains from the vat, there still could have been questioning and just like process of elimination. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the first thing you do is eliminate, you know, as many possibilities as you can. I mean, I guess the the necessary like addendum to that conspiracy is that the local authorities were okay with assisting with a cover-up. That would be a necessary addendum to that. Mm. And I don't know if it was necessarily, like, so flagrant of we're helping with a cover-up. I want to go into a little bit more of kind of what was going on at the plant, because Mm. they were known for threatening individual workers as well. Oh, okay. So tell me about that. That's good. So one of the safety managers at the plant, his name was Daniel Arthur, described the safety protocols at Fernald as terribly inadequate. Mm. He said that worker safety procedures and environmental safety procedures hadn't been updated since the 60s. Workers had been handling, it came out that workers had been handling plutonium without even being told that that's what they were handling. Yikes. And without any of the special respirators or permits to be doing this. Mm. When Arthur brought these concerns to his supervisors, complaints were filed against Arthur for taking excessive time off and having a bad Mm. attitude about his job responsibilities. Gotcha. Now, David, being a pipe fitter, obviously had to know about a lot of, you know, the faulty equipment. It was his Mm -hmm. job to fix it and replace it. So people wonder, how much did he know about all of this faulty equipment? How much did he know about what was being handled? There's no evidence and no paper trail that he knew any of this. He hadn't been in contact with any journalists that we know of. As far as him planning to be a whistleblower, we don't have any evidence to support that. Yeah, and it just doesn't seem... It doesn't seem um, with his character, to be honest. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like his personality. Not that there's, like, a personality that does that, or mm-hmm. it doesn't, but it just, like, I don't know. He's never been described as, like, an outspoken person or somebody that was, like, particularly in the know on things. Like, he was a guy that kept to himself, yeah. you know. Yeah. Somebody did, however, eventually leak a lot of this information. Mm. Within three years after Box's death, there was a congressional committee regarding the Fernald plant. Hmm. That safety supervisor, Daniel Arthur, testified to the congressional committee. This huge investigation that eventually led to the complete shutdown of the plant and really kind of changed the way that politics deals with nuclear energy, probably Mm. in a good way. Yeah. And that's when the lawsuits started to come forward. Data regarding the high cancer rates in the area, the unsafe water to drink. Um, Mm. By 1989, the plant was completely shut down. Yeah. So a lot of people would say that the attention on David Box's death was one of the factors that brought so much attention to the plant. Mm. I think it's one of many factors. There was a huge environmental and water safety lawsuit going on at the time. Again, the idea of a conspiracy and him being a whistleblower is really sexy. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we have the evidence to support any of that. I think we have some really shady characters that got away with never having to answer for their actions. Yeah, pretty much. And like you said, it would mean that 
the Hamilton County sheriffs were involved in a massive cover-up of a murder. So far, they're just, like, inadequate, mm-hmm. right? But there's a big difference between inadequate and complicit, mm-hmm. you know? Now, yeah. we can go down the road of, well, the Department of Energy was huge at this time. Um, yeah. They ran kind of free reign <laughs> over whatever they wanted to do in the 80s. Yeah. We can also look down weird coincidences, like Box's psychiatrist and his brother died shortly after David. That's weird. How shortly? Within the next two years, I believe. Wow. I can fact check myself on that timeline. One of them died in a hit and run, and the other one was killed by a drunk driver. So very random Mm. accidents. Again, you can find connections wherever you want to. And people definitely have, actually, one of the journalists that was responsible for getting this case onto Unsolved Mysteries had a huge falling out with the Box family because he basically took every single conspiracy theory and ran with it. Mm. You know, just connecting it to whatever he could. Casey Box, David's daughter, just felt like she was taken advantage of by him because he was promising her answers and, you know, we're going to get you this, you know, justice and we're going to get you money, you know, for your suffering Mm -hmm. and for your loss and everything like that. But the longer Casey worked with him, she felt like he just took things too far and she was just like, stop, stop talking about my dad all you're doing that at this point is using it for your own advantage, and I do, still don't have any answers. Yeah. So to this day, David's family is still kind of fighting to get answers. Mm. The Hamilton County Police Department has basically said, no, the books are shut on this case. It was a suicide. We're done. So dismissive. Mm-hmm. And the data doesn't tell us that. That's, Ugh. Yeah. They say that there's a very thick investigative file on this, and I'm sure that they looked at pieces of evidence and they followed up with some immediate people, but to me, they dropped the ball completely. And maybe that's because they didn't want to handle the nuclear evidence. Right. Yeah, which is a liability, certainly. And maybe it's because they didn't want to deal with the Department of Energy, you know, breathing down their backs. Yeah. But it feels like all they wanted to do was shut this case. Alderucci said, oh, schizophrenia, done. Mm. And that didn't give the family any any closure, any answers whatsoever. The family is still fighting for some answers. Like I said, they were really involved in the Accused podcast. They were actually, like, Mm. really active in that. I even came across a message board on... I think it was Reddit or something like that, where David's oldest son, Tony, actually posted on it, thanking people for their prayers and thanking people for continuing to talk about this case. Um, Yeah, they said unequivocally, our dad did not kill himself. You know, they don't necessarily buy into the conspiracies either, but they just want to know what happened that night. Yeah, I mean, if we're getting into the space of just, like, guessing, I think you have to run down, like... You know, the common sense scenario, the scenario that most makes sense, is probably exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. There was an altercation at the workplace. 
somebody took an opportunity that was presented to them mm-hmm. and it was probably something like pretty mundane and you know there you have it like just the setting makes it so like you know ripe for mystery and ripe for conspiracy but you know like my guess is that it's there was some kind of issue between two workaday dudes mm-hmm. and somebody flew off on David yeah and the vat was again a convenient way to get rid of a body and any evidence mm-hmm. You know, again, I think that the manager has to answer for some stuff. I think Mm -hmm. that um, that missing worker. Yeah, Shouse. I think that missing worker that was on suspension has to answer for Mm -hmm. some stuff. And again, these aren't allegations, but they clearly, in my mind, in doing the research, it there just wasn't enough follow up. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. Jeez. So, what are your thoughts? What do you think happened? I mean, I just think it's really sad. I think it's really sad that that happened. He seemed like such a nice guy and, you know, just kind of doing Mm -hmm. the best he could. And I admire that in the 80s, he was, like, seeking really good psychiatric care. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, against stigmas and and all that stuff. I think he, he sounds like a really admirable person. And, like, he was trying his best. So, yeah, I really think, honestly, like, the what probably happened would be, like, quote, unquote, boring. Yeah. That if it happened in any other factory, we wouldn't be talking about this. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's it's easy to make it sensational. It's easy to look at all these, like, bizarre possibilities because of the setting and the, the political climate of it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it was probably somebody that was pissed off at David for some what we might call like a a silly reason or like a very everyday reason Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. I think I think the setting is what probably makes it extraordinary not the crime itself but I certainly think there was a crime like I I don't buy the suicide theory one bit yeah one bit and that's the same thing with Elisa Lamb is like Mm -hmm. what happened to Elisa Lamb is the setting is so interesting the Mm -hmm. Cecil Hotel all this like history and intrigue and everything like that but when you look at the facts of what happened to her it's pretty straightforward it's a mundane explanation and that doesn't take away the fact that it is incredibly sad exactly and again i think it just comes to we need to be i don't know i feel like i'm always on my high horse about like addressing mental health and Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's literally my job well it's it's almost always a factor like that's the thing it's almost always a factor Mm -hmm. so how do you not get on that high horse yeah like let's actually be like informed and fact-based about how we talk about mental health because i feel like in both elisa lamb's story and david box's story that it was completely misinterpreted. You know, it's interesting because the the conclusions for either case are, you know, in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. Like for Elisa Lamb, we erase all of her mental health issues to create the sexy story. And for David Box, they needed his mental health issues to be the story so they could shut the case down. But he was getting care. He was medicated. Mm-hmm. He was seeing his psychiatrist. And I like, I don't like that path also because it allows us to slap people with the label of a disorder and be done with them whether or not they're getting their treatment when the reality is that when you're getting treatment you're very likely to be extremely functional and i feel like it 
it's very dehumanizing in both cases the way that we talk about the mental illness side of things yes, like totally. somebody with schizophrenia deserves the exact same ferocity in their in the investigation of their death yes 100 percent, 100 percent. yeah so i just feel bad because i feel like what happened to him you know there's just all this other like stuff that clouds around it that makes it you know it's all the smoke that mm-hmm means you can't see the real picture. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think the real picture is probably very simple. It probably is deceptively simple. I agree. And and to be honest, I think that that's kind of where the family has landed at this point from yeah. just from listening to their stories. And mm-hmm. they just want that kind of heard and respected. And yeah. Yeah. Well, we're not the crowd that necessarily matters, but we definitely hear it and respect it. That's for sure. Yep. We see you boxes. Yeah. We do. We do. And we feel with you. Yep. I hope we did mm. your story justice. Yeah. Interesting case, dude. Good yeah, job. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> really uh, interesting. I, I haven't seen that episode of Unsolved Mysteries since <laughs> the 90s. <laughs> since 1994 when it premiered. Yeah. And, you know, like, I feel like everybody has the mystery that, like, stands out to them. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember that one. But yeah. now I want to go back and find it. I don't know why that one stuck out to me. Like, of all the crazy, crazy stories. Because I promise you I've seen every single episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, me too. But Ohio. I think that's what it was. I was like, oh, I know yeah. where that is. Yeah, totally. I, I go to Loveland. That. Yeah. We all still do that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's why we're mid-wretched. Mm. Exactly. I know that exactly. town. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. Speaking of which... Aren't we going back to your home state next week? We are. Good segue. Yeah. You are just the queen of segues. Yeah. So next week we will be actually visiting uh, my two home states, two of my three home states, actually. We will be in Michigan most of our time. We'll dip a little bit into the Hoosier state as well. Um, And we will be looking at a case of a female killer. We haven't had another since Belgunis, I don't think. Oh, we've had Alyssa Bustamante, but... Yeah, it's been a minute, and we will be looking at a uh, a case that begins, at least, with a potential overdose slash cover-up of a murder, and the story may end with acts of cannibalism. Cannibalism, you say? Yes, cannibalism in the mitten state. But yeah, so come back and listen to this one. It is bonkers. Yeah. Really bonkers. And it will take us to a town that is uh, very close to my heart in the backwoods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Weird things happen up there. Real weird things happen up there. Yeah, they do. Yeah. So this is going to be interesting. I am super psyched. So everybody tune back in. Yes, please. Uh, And don't forget to... uh, you know, chat with us, you know, enter, you know, our little giveaway thingy, get a Tumblr, yeah. get it some stickers, yeah. get some Midwest yeah. merch. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. We're excited. Yeah, 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 yeah. So visit us on the socials. Leave us happy, mm-hmm. nice reviews wherever you leave reviews. Mostly iTunes, I think. Yeah, Apple Podcasts. Yeah, whatever. Whatever the kids are calling it these days. Yeah. You know I'm not cool like that. I don't know what kids do. I- <laughs> I like that we both work with them and we're like, well, whatever. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> well, 
I heard something about how I'm not supposed to have like a side part anymore. So no, yeah, you're not supposed to. No, nope, it's supposed to be down the middle now, yeah. and no more skinny jeans. Well, as long as they don't go to back to low rise jeans, I'm happy. They're threatening to. No, no. Yeah. No, we have pooches yeah. now, and we need the we high do. rise. I mean, we did back then, too. We did back then, too. Let's just fucking be honest here. (laughs) Yeah. We just let them fly, even though we deeply, deeply hated ourselves at the same time. Yes. Anyway, (sighs) let's do our little sign-off, he sees. Indeed. So even though we hated ourselves, we want to remind you to be nice. Eat cheese. And we love you. And we love you. Eat so much cheese. Make those high-rise jeans worth it, girl. prison oh. cannot everything ensure. okay over there yeah you know there's also a nine week old puppy here so um <laughs> chaos is our life my a beautiful husband is just shaking his head at her that's all you can do all <laughs> you can do and sometimes it is sometimes it is tell them both i love them yeah